and welcome to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that celebrates the women behind the scenes of the British film industry. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. Hello, pod pals. It's Nicole. Welcome to the latest episode of Best Girl Grip. The beady-eyed among you might notice that it's going out a little bit later than usual. I have no excuse or apology for you. That's just what happened. But I won't delay you any further. My guest this week is Nia Hughes, an organising official for BECTU, the Union for Creative Ambition. They represent over 40,000 staff, contract and freelance workers in the media and entertainment industries and do a lot of important work to support and advise their members on issues such as pay and conditions, but also career development, contracts of employment, hours, leave, maternity, pensions and bullying and harassment. Nia was really integral to the Ritzy Cinema London Living Wage campaign, having started her career working for that very cinema, and she is currently focused on supporting freelancers and making sure they know their rights. If you're a freelancer in the film industry, this is the episode for you. Towards the end, Nia talks about several things you can and should be doing to protect yourself and maximise your chances of having a positive professional experience. Uh, They are golden nuggets of wisdom and I am so thrilled that Nia came on the podcast to share them. Also a fun thing, uh, I'm moderating a session this Sunday at the BFI's Future Film Festival, an event for 16 to 25 year olds interested in the film industry. I'll be chatting to Emily Jufroy, who co-founded Elation Pictures, uh, about setting up that production company at 11am at BFI Southbank. So if you're there, come and say hello. In the meantime, enjoy my interview with Nia Hughes. This is episode 46 of Best Girl Grip. I, I did study. I went to Camberwell College of Arts uh, just down the road and studied fine art photography between 2006 and 2009. So you had like creative ambitions? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I feel like I've always been creative, but by the time I kind of got to the end of that course, I had kind of fallen out of love, I think, with photography and so haven't actually picked it up since. And did that realisation that you didn't want to pursue photography come while you were at university? Um, at art college, yeah, I think I think it was just my passion for it just became so conceptualised that I just fell, you know, fell kind of out of love with it in a way. Even though I still have the love and the passion for it, but I, I didn't, I, I knew that I didn't really want to, you know, kind of carry on down that path. And what path did you go down after graduating? <laughs> Okay, so I went down a couple of paths. I spent a couple of months, maybe upwards of a year, being a part of other people's um, uh, performance pieces. Mm -hmm. So I did a couple at uh, mostly the Tanks, which were new actually at the Tate at the time, um, with a really lovely friend uh, called Patrick Staff. And did a piece for um, Emily Royston, who's another artist, a really great artist, and another one which was quite this gorgeous kind of queer utopian mm-hmm. uh, performance by um, Carlos Mota. So I ended up doing, you know, just kind of dipping in and out of other people's collective performance pieces and got a job for this really weird company called Winkball, kind of Vox Pops. So okay. we would be sent to football matches, gigs, political kind of... Um, you know, gatherings and all you would do is get like a quick minute, one minute Vox Pop on why, you know, why someone's been there or what they've enjoyed or something. 
And at the same time, I was doing like a little bit of editing uh, here and there, but nothing really very serious. And throughout this whole time, I still had my job at the Ritzy Cinema. Right. So doing kind of lots of different experimental stuff uh, with, you know, just in that way that you do, I suppose, after coming out mm. of art school. And what were you doing yeah. at the Ritzy? I worked front of house. Okay. <laughs> and was that your so, like step into the world of cinema and how how a cinema yeah, is run? Yeah, absolutely. I had a really lovely, really lovely friend who was a year above me at Camberwell, and in the second year that I was there, I was looking for a job, and she said, "Oh, um, I work at this cinema in Brixton," and I thought, "Oh, okay." Um, she said, "You should come in and just like have a little look at it, kind of thing," and so I I just remember walking in and thinking. Oh yeah, this like this feels really you know right, and yeah, so that's how I started working there. Stayed there for ten years for multiple multiple reasons. I always remained front of house. I didn't you know the 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 kind of pay in in that sector like mm. never I never really wanted to uh, progress within that company, and. Yeah, it's kind of tricky to explain why I stayed there for 10 years because it's it's mostly to do with the with the people who mm. work there. When I first got there, I was um I was quite young in my coming out as well, and then I realized that there was like a really a really big kind of queer community there. Yeah, it became I don't know, it became a um became my family. And was that how you're making a living when you're doing the other experimental performative stuff? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I would have uh, X amount of shifts at the Ritzy mm. and yeah, do whatever I wanted kind of outside of that. I think I think it is a, a really brilliant job in that way. It kind of can give you like stability mm. if you're, especially if you do want to, you know, kind of go up the ladder as it were or access the film industry in, in, that, in that exhibition way. Everyone who worked there at the time, you know, they were all primarily from either like a music background, artists, filmmakers. And so it was like a, you know, a really creative, creative pot. Mm. And that's so essential as well, isn't it? I think when you are still figuring out perhaps what you want to do to have other people that are doing that as well and like making ends meet and then kind of trying to do stuff on the side. Yeah. To see that struggle and to share that struggle with other people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, quite supportive. Yeah, and I suppose that's one of the main reasons why, you know, I think when I started working there, it was was affordable in South London. You know, everyone lived within like a two mile radius Mm. or something and, and, you know, were able to afford rent. And then at some point during that 10 years, I, I suppose like around 20 yeah 2013 2014 it just tipped you know kind of that whole gentrification of south london and brixton especially meant that we kind of as staff we kept on facing increasing rents and increasing like living costs and you know there there were people who had been there for years and and when we talk about do, did you want to get into the film industry or something or did you want to progress i think something that was really important for us was to actually also accept and have the understanding that maybe people didn't want to do that but it was still a legitimate job Mm. um and it was still a legitimate livelihood you know working at a cinema like it's not anything to be ashamed of um at all so that kind of tipped and then that was the beginning of uh what would become the ritzy living wage campaign 
And is that how so, you became aware of Beck too? How did that kind? Because of, it sounds like you're already kind of keyed into the issues that you are dealing with in yeah. your day to day job now. Um, so ha- yeah, talk me through how you became aware <laughs> of Beck too and okay. you know, what Beck too is, etc. Yeah. So I became aware of Beck too pretty much instantly the second I walked into the Ritzy because they uh, they had a well they do have a union recognition with Beck too. Mm. I had a rep who came up to me and said we're a part of the union and so now you need to join (laughs) and I was like okay um you know for 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 a couple of years I thought yeah of course I'll you know I'll just join and kind of contribute to my collective uh to the collective pool I suppose but never really thought about it much I think that there was like it was in really good safe hands but there wasn't really a lot of kind of uh, negotiations going on or you know big kind of wage rises or anything a year before I became a rep there the person who had been doing it had left and I think I think that they hadn't offered us like 24p pay rise or something and I was like, oh, that's not great. <laughs> uh, so that's how it started. I got offered, you know, someone said, I think you'd be a really good rep. We really need it. And so my journey with Beck2 really pretty much started there. They have a really good uh, training program. So I had to go and do that. Uh, there had been a couple of people who had been reps in the past who I worked on kind of re- re-engaging mm. in the union and there were a couple of other people who I thought would be really would be really good you know would be able to do it but also would be attractive to other members or prospective members as reps and so I just slowly built it back up I think when I took it over there was like maybe 30% or something density and by the time we went on our first strike I think it was up to 85 so yeah, yeah, it was like a, a climb. Yeah. <laughs> a huge climb. Yeah. So that's how I became involved in Beck 2. And just to backtrack yeah. quickly, talk yeah. me through what a rep is and who are you representing yeah. and how are you doing that? Okay. Uh, so a representative is a trained up Beck 2 member who has been voted in to be the representative of the workforce. Mm-hmm. You can have you know, you can have X amounts of reps uh, depending on uh, the workplace that you're in. And their role really is to do anything from represent a member if they're in a disciplinary or grievance, sit on the negotiation table with uh, with the employer, organise your workplace, you know, make sure that people are aware of, like, their rights, make sure that they feel safe at work and yeah I suppose identify issues that you know people are facing or feeling collectively and to try and put them forward to the employer and try and get something something back from them yeah and did you feel quite immediately that you were kind of like good in that almost like mediation role like for me it was the organizing that I really loved you know I it was it was a real massive learning curve for me to be able to like put a kind of a band of reps together mm. and to also be quite strategic about who who they were you know like there were people who were a lot older than me at the time at the Ritzy who had long standing kind of respect because they'd been there for quite a long time and then there were like kind of younger or newer people who 
I knew that were quite popular and so they would be, you know, naturally like mm. maybe a good a good kind of fit. So it was mostly working the ground, which I suppose there are strategies. There are definite, you know, kind of workable strategies that you can that you can kind of deploy. But for us it was a direct response to the mass gentrification of the area that we were working at, mm. um, higher costs of living, but also kind of tr- like going through this trajectory of watching uh, Picture House become more and more commercial, mm. but through the guise of of like really expensive tickets, selling fair trade gro- goods, um, having, you know, five pound popcorn bags, you know, and we were just like, hold on a second, like, this doesn't make sense. Like, it was almost as if we were serving the people who could now afford to live around there. And I suppose in a way, all we wanted was was a, a wage that reflected what we felt was fair. Mm. And and also something that we could live off. You know, in London, if you don't, if you don't earn the living wage, you're technically living in poverty. Mm. Yeah, and we also kind of... I think there was also the, the the kind of collective awareness that, you know, things like the Human Rights Watch Film Festival was being hosted there. Yeah, that didn't... didn't so it, it just that, Yeah, it just started not going down well with people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, yeah, it's a, but just to come back in terms of, of the rep thing, we had our negotiations, uh, yearly negotiations dates coming up mm. and decided on a couple of things that we would take to the table but have a clear goal of what the one main issue would be if we needed to take that out right, right. and um, campaign around it and that's how we decided on the living wage and is that how you approach most campaigns you kind of pick the biggest thing that you're going to escalate and then you have other things around it if perhaps they're amenable to negotiation <laughs> yeah. how do you decide you know what's the, yeah. the thing that you're going for I think a couple of ways. I think you have to really be very acute to reading the room um, with your members. I think sometimes it can be what's practical. Mm. Sometimes it can it can be something that maybe um, a workplace has negotiated back in you know twenty years ago or something, and it's been it's been dropped and it's kind of lost its uh, meaning. It can be something that a branch strategically thinks about okay well where do we want to be in five years time you know and like laying down the groundwork now so it can be a huge range of 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 ways in which you decide on what a uh what a campaign you know which campaign you're going to run or what are you going to specifically focus on in in negotiations and with picture house perhaps particularly but also in general for campaigns once you've sort of achieved that main goal Mm -hmm. is it you then go to the next point or is it sort of like campaign done how how does Mm. it work in that regard well that picture house campaign is not done you know (laughs) we um it was the living wage hasn't been achieved Mm. um but if you if we take into consideration the kind of um campaign that we ran and the fact that it was quite intensely branded it was able to reach other cinemas in london it had a huge effect on the curzon for example becoming a living wage employer right. because they uh, they i assume didn't want the bad you know press mm. it's also it's also been 
uh, it also kind of revived trade unionism in a way because a campaign like that had never been run. And I think the way the thing that's important about it is that we it was definitely like a grassroots uh, campaign. You know, it was using the skills that the staff at the Ritzy had mm-hmm. uh, from branding through to making through to ideas about what we were going to call it. And usually what you find is that unions tend to make kind of decisions up at the top. Mm-hmm. And then by the time it's like trickled down, you kind of have like some form of campaign around it. But but I think the thing that made the Ritzy so strong was that it was actually run by us, you know, and that Beck too gave us the space and embraced uh, the way that we wanted to run it and um, fully supported it and continue to do so today, mm-hmm. you know, which is like seven years later. So campaigns are kind of ongoing and then yeah. you're, are they ever really finished? You know, like, yeah. presumably there's always the aspiration that uh, a workplace could be better. And yeah. so even if you then achieve a living wage, yeah. there might be other ways to improve yeah, that relationship between employer and employee. Yeah. yeah. I think like a really good example of a campaign that the, that Beck to have at the moment is the, the new packed agreements that we have with the producing association mm you know, that covers major motion picture, like anything that's that's produced over 30 million, um, and TV drama. You know, that's been probably, I'd say, about 10 years in the making. Wow. And it's, it was only in 2017 when, when that was the first draft of that, like the first working model of that was signed off. You know, so it can take years. Mm. <laughs> it depends, really, if you're thinking about it long-term, or whether there's enough uh, galvanization and oomph and the membership density there to do it. Mm. Those are the those are the kind of contributing factors. Um, something I really want to know about kind of you personally, and then in relation to sort of a wider cultural context, yeah. um, is is how you stay motivated. Because something that I saw being talked about a lot, particularly in the wake of of Trump and Me Too yeah. and and the you know the activist uprising that yeah. we sort of felt in the media was burnout uh-huh. and how you stay angry yeah. and how you galvanize that <laughs> anger in a way and turn it into meaningful action um, and I feel like you'll have yeah. a, a good a good perspective <laughs> on that when something for instance like the pact uh, thing yeah. you just mentioned takes 10 years mm-hmm. um, how do you keep motivated. motivated exactly um how do you keep motivated as a trade unionist gosh I think for me like in terms of I definitely felt burned out like after um after I left the the living wage campaign like we had put so much time and so much effort and you know outreach like every day and and I suppose in a way I was quite naive Mm. in in industrial relations and I was also maybe looking back at it now like naive in how in the you know inverted commas independent companies are owned by huge conglomerate companies who just will throw all types of money at you know just quashing okay. uh your campaign and uh making life very difficult for you and amending things in the workplace which mm-hmm. is also really really tricky i think i just took a step back from that which Maybe I'm still kind of recovering from really, 
Uh, and I know that a couple of, you know, a couple of the other reps who used to be in, in, in that campaign also, you know, had to, had to maybe take a, a bit of time out kind of thing. But in terms of my job now, looking after mm. freelancers, I think you just have to think, I, I think, yeah, I think you have to think about it as a, the long game. Um, yeah, marathon, not sprint. Yeah, absolutely. And just continue being healthy, you know, and mm. continue kind of think, continue thinking, okay, that hasn't worked. So let's look at something else. Always, always have a dialogue with your branches, always have a dialogue with your members and especially like your committee, because actually they're the important people. They're the people who are actually working on, on the ground. And to take from them, you know, to, to kind of not always give your energy or no, that's the wrong way to put it is to not have your energy be the most important energy in the room. Right, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like you're refracting their voices into the campaign as opposed to yeah. being something, it's like taking it from you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so even though maybe I'm the person who has the experience in organising, mm. my job really is to make sure that they become fully-fledged organisers, maybe even without using that language, mm-hmm. you know, but just to make them feel that they're making decisions and the decisions that they're making is reflective of what they need and what they want. And I think, you know, just kind of maybe going back to finding something that you uh, feel passionate about Mm. and outside of work, you know, and spending a lot of time with friends and just the regular things Mm. that you do when when you've faced uh, a big campaign, uh, which has maybe taken taken it out of you a little bit. To transform that energy, I think, which I, which is what I feel like I've done. You know, mm. I I took all of that creativity and learning curve and reality, and then kind of use it in a way to really push freelance organizing. I think in a in a modern uh, embracing way. So yeah, talk to me about yeah. what you're doing now and where that decision came from to kind of work in the freelancing sphere and yeah. what your priorities are at the moment. Yeah. Uh, okay, so when I joined Beck2, um, we had a really wonderful general secretary who said, if you're going to come and work at Beck2, you're not, I don't, I don't, I'm not really keen if you stay in the position, you know, looking after the branches that mm. you, or the, the sector that you've come from. Which is good because I didn't want to look at a cinema for a very long time. Uh, and so I was put into what's known as the London Production Division of Beck 2. So we look after a freelance crew. We've got about 12,000 members across all grades, uh, all freelancers and all work within the M25. So okay. anywhere from, you know, Envy in, in town... Uh, through to, you know, one of the major studios, so Pinewood, Shepparton, Leavesden. I mean, I was literally thrown into a big pool. Because that's a lot. There's yeah. a lot of people <laughs> with kind of differing needs yeah, um, and, and different kind of ways of working. So yeah. it's sort of a lot to figure out in your head. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. So, you're, you know, that's the kind of amazing thing about Back to Your, you're taken on because you're trusted and you've proven that you can do it somewhere else. And then they throw you into a massive sea of crew members that you've probably never come across before. 
So you have to learn how to swim pretty quickly, quite strongly against like, you know, a flow of mm. of currents. It's fascinating. It was fascinating to me, like to think about the locations department, who they are, how they work, how isolated they were, you know, or are mm. slash are. Um, they spend a lot of time by themselves. They're very independent thinkers, uh, which, you know, is not, is maybe uh, kind of can cause maybe a little bit of friction when you try and get them to do something. Right, right. But also it's their own branch and, you know, and they know what they need and they know what they want. And, and so that's also really positive. And then the editors that I took over had just had a complete rehaul in their in their committee and they're a mix between film editors, TV drama, factual and short form editors. Okay. And they're just brilliant. They're like, they're a real amazing branch within Beck 2. They're really innovative. Uh, they're very self-sufficient. They really know what needs doing in terms of amending uh, terms and conditions and, and the whole industry, really, the post industry. Like they're really, they're really on top of it. So that's kind of been a joy to work with as well. And one of the struggles that they had was how do we reach out to younger members of, of Post? What I did with them is develop, they have their own branding. So they're called the Rough Assembly. And what we did was we started uh, events. So meet the assistant or meet the editors or something. And so the concept behind that is that we have three to four mainstream or not mainstream but big name kind of editors mm. or assistant editors and then it's a panel discussion b between them about say working on the crown or something and that gives younger members of the industry like an opportunity to meet them to network but also to understand that they everyone who we have speak is are actually back to members and so it kind of demystifies this concept that a lot of young crew have that they a are not allowed to join back to b shouldn't join back to because that gives you a bad name or you know you'll kind of be blacklisted and c just gives them an opening i think to people who can really help them with their with their careers mm. you know moving forward is that an issue? Like, there's a stigma around being part of a union that yeah, you're absolutely. there to politicise or to cause trouble. Like, and how do you how do you quash that? I think it depends what branch you look at. I think if you think about the grips or the sparks or the riggers, you know, big kind of studio branches like that. If you're not in the union, that's pretty much frowned upon. And then you have other branches like where it's it's a huge issue where people feel scared or people don't want to put their heads above the parapet. Especially if you do like a an isolated role. And by isolated, I mean, I don't mean that you don't work with people, but what mm. I mean is that maybe there's only one of you on the entire set. Right, yeah, yeah. Like a producer, for example. It's a classic thing that a producer would go, mm. oh, but I can't join back too. And it's like, no, you can. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, any anyone can join a union. It's their it's their total right. So we've had to respond to that as well in really creative ways. Like, how do we ensure that we access all types of crew who may not have the confidence to come forward and express how they actually feel about what's going on? And I think technology has been a huge part of that. 
stuff like um, Zoom and Slack, having the ability to organize meetings on a social, on sorry, on a social media or technological platform, a means that we can have people attend from anywhere, mm. you know, wh- whatever kind of set they're on, or whatever location they might be on. But B, to, in a way, kind of allow them an, an, an element of... They could yeah. be anonymous. Yeah. Um, but obviously, they we, we would know who they mm. are, um, because they would have to be back to member. Yeah, we've we've embraced it in a, in a good way, I think. And how does the relationship work between you and the branches? Are they coming to you with sort of their priorities or concerns? And then are you equipping them with the tools to deal with that? It's definitely a mix when you take over a branch you need to identify what they have and what they don't have Mm. so for example when I took over the locations department branch they didn't have a rate card and that when I took over the post-production branch they did have a rate card but I think it was really old and so we we put you know we put it in motion then to kind of gather gather that detail and and produce one so that definitely, you have to identify what they have, what they don't have, what they need and what they don't need right. because they can be, well, those things can be completely different. We often tend to say, these are the things that we have found that have worked with other branches. So like events, networking events, training is mm-hmm. a huge part of it. Making sure that they, that they have access to us like pretty much whenever they need. There's other ways, you know, that you have to almost tame certain grades because they've done stuff in a very traditional, old school way for many years. And when you say to them, oh, can we meet by via dial-in maybe, you know, and it's absolute <laughs> chaos. chaos and mayhem. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a collaborative mm. uh, experience. Work with them, you know, give them a platform finance stuff if they need it. That's what we did with the post-production and facilities branch. Like those small events have gradually turned into uh, post-fest, which, you know, has been running for two years and it's like hugely popular with, with the post community. So yeah, it's, it's certainly a, a collaboration. And when you nail that down, it's a really wonderful feeling because you see people grow. Is that the most gratifying part of your job? It's certainly one of them. Yeah. I think I think for me in freelancing now, like it's it's kind of amazing, you know, but people have no rights and it's really lonely, I mm. think, for a lot of people. So when we can when we can be an active part of people developing their own uh, communities within film, I think that's like a huge thing uh, that I feel really proud of. And also when we when we're able to have small but significant wins like when you have like a group of freelancers for example who all come together on set and say no that's not okay how you've treated one specific department and if it's not rectified then we won't be we won't be working you know that would have been unthinkable i think a couple of years mm. ago and speaking of that loneliness that freelancers can face besides mm-hmm. making themselves perhaps aware of back to you um, what else would you advise that they can be doing to protect and help themselves so always sign a contract the amount of people who call me and say 
I haven't been paid or I've been cancelled or what's the deal with this? And I go, okay, well, what does your contract say? And they go, didn't have one. I know that people are engaged in quick ways. It's quick turnaround. It's a quick kind of yes or no. I need to know because mm-hmm. I'm being put under a, you know pressure from a producer or something. Always have a contract if you can. If you don't have a contract, then you need to write up your own standard terms. I think back to are going to probably put one put one out soon that you can just kind of cut and paste. But always, always make sure there's cancellation fee or your cancellation T's and C's. Mm-hmm. Learn how to say no is a huge thing. I think people often think, oh shit, if I don't say yes to this, I'm never going to work again. You know, we understand that when people come into the industry that they are really keen and really eager and need to get their name out there and stuff like that. And I think that there are best practices about how to do that, especially in your first year. But after that, you know, after a couple of credits under your belt, you it's probably a good thing to, to maybe be a little bit more picky about what you're choosing, who, who you work with. Because I think maybe in the first five years, everyone's so excited, mm. you know, about being in the industry. But really, if you don't install those good practices in early, you're looking at not being a very healthy person further down the line. Know that you have the right to join a union. Doesn't matter what grade you're in. Uh, that's always a good thing to know. Master the confidence of negotiating. It's such a fine balance. When you know that someone's being bullied at work and that place isn't healthy for them, you have to be really creative about the way that you negotiate the you know, potential way out of that position for them. And yeah, like we work a lot with Sarah Putts from Sarah Putts Associates who would also be an amazing person. For yeah, this she's on my list as well. And she has uh, a very very kind of nailed down wonderful, you know, negotiating process and delivery uh, and understands the nuance of kind of doing things in a different way depending on who you're talking to, you know. So we've worked a lot with with her um, she's been really kind and gives up quite a lot of time for, for Beck2 members. Especially women, you know, the amount of people that we have come to us and they say, oh, I've just realised that I'm being paid hundreds and hundreds of pounds less than, you know, my this other male freelancer. The confidence as well, especially if you're also coming back in to work after being maybe on maternity or you've taken a bit of time out. It's really hard. It's really hard. So we try and install good practices and it's also nuanced based on where you're at in your career or how many jobs you have coming in that year or how many how many times you've been booked. Stuff like rate cards have really helped. Us delivering negotiation training has has definitely helped. And I think it's really important because I think there's a lot of injustice in this industry. I think it's really rife. Do you think there's a need for greater transparency as well around what people are getting paid? Because obviously it's, yeah. hard, it's hard to put the onus on the person to say, you know, this is what I'm earning. Yeah. But I feel like if everyone yeah. spoke more about, <laughs> you know, the different pay grades and yeah. you know, what they got paid for it and stuff and how they make a living. Well, the thing, the thing, the wonderful thing about what's happened in um, a couple of branches is that actually that's what they did. 
they thought, okay, like us hiding what we're getting is no longer serving anyone. Mm. And so through those rate card surveys, they got data on what who was who was earning what. Right. And, you know, it just made it a lot more transparent. And it also made people realise, fuck, I cannot believe that I'm being paid as, yeah. as little as that. You know, or who is getting paid that and all kinds of like variables, you know. But it's in certain branches, we've definitely seen it, that the they developed that and thought, no, that isn't the culture that we want to embrace anymore. Um, and it's had a huge positive effect on, on the rates that they are getting. I would definitely, definitely recommend to trust your instinct. I think if you have a gut feeling that something is wrong, it probably means that at some point it's going to raise its head as something that is wrong. And learning how to trust that gut as well and kind of developing relationships with people so that you can go to them and say, well, this isn't, you know, this isn't great kind of thing. And I think because the industry is so busy, it's so vast and it's it's not going anywhere, it's just going to continue growing. I think it's really important for people to just stop, you know, and take a break mm. and take and a holiday. And know that will be there when you get back. Yeah, right? like, exactly. Yeah. yeah, like there's such, I mean, I come across it a lot, you know, where people are like, oh, I've been offered this kind of gig and I should take it. And I say, well, when was the last time you, you know, you took a holiday? Just spend time with your family, you know, your friends, your lovers, like doing things because it's it's never good you know 10 20 years mm. down the line but of course that's also a tricky thing to to advise because there's always going to be someone snapping at your heel you know who will take it so it's it's a tricky one and but it definitely requires a balance mm. uh, just in order for you to look after your own well-being i guess it's also about like owning the decision whatever that is and and trying not to like look back or doubt or regret the decision you know whether it's that's going on yeah. holiday or accepting the job like yeah. either way like just yeah say, kind like, of embracing in that moment. yeah exactly yeah totally like that that sense of embracing whatever you whatever mm-hmm. decision that you've you've chosen to to make are there any campaigns you're working on at the moment or what are your priorities at the moment Personally, I'm working on, this is going to sound so dull, I'm working on um, expandable foam. Expandable foam? (laughs) Talk to me about that. So expandable foam is a product that has been kind of slowly creeping into the industry, mostly in, in plastering branches, and it's used in instead of traditional plaster methods so it's meant to only be used in a couple of inch square you know kind of uh, bits Mm -hmm. but it's actually being used to make huge huge humongous sets right so it comes along with a massive amount of health and safety issues and so at the moment i'm currently collating information from a survey that we sent out to start a working group and hopefully that working group will put proposals forward to all the producers about how to have how to how to agree on absolute minimum standards in Mm -hmm. terms of what people wear when they use it how long it has to cure um how long it's curing before before people start you know sculpting it Mm. it's it's bad 
it's it's bad news and I think we need to on people's health and I think we need to definitely definitely have a commitment from everyone in the industry that moving forward is going to be used in in a best practice kind of light and then union-wide where we've just launched a, a dignity at work campaign so that covers all kind of areas of dignity and we just continue to push our eyes half shut campaign because the the amount of people who get into accidents after long long hours mm. you know who kind of have car crashes who have short and long health problems you know people who are on like their second divorces you know they never see their kids mm. it's a huge issue and so for us a priority is really getting the working day down because it's not okay that people are out of the house 17, 18, 19 hours a day um, and doing it for weeks and weeks, possibly months on end. Because even an hour would, you know, would make a huge difference. And the way that you do that is you, uh, you engage your branches and you make sure that they are on the other side of the table and that they can put a convincing, realistic account of what their working lives are like you know and because they know the reasons why they need to be home or why it would be healthy for them to be mm. home it's almost um, like that anecdotal evidence is more like powerful isn't it so yeah absolutely yeah exactly they're the ones who are creating this content um so they know what they need they instinctively know what they need and what would make everything better and so we at the moment just continue to 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 push that and hopefully at some point the producers will take it seriously enough to implement change. Mm. And it's not a case of saying it's not possible because productions that use child actors yeah. are really hot on that because mm-hmm. they have to be. Yeah. Um, and you see that discipline um, being enforced all the time. Yeah. And, and films like Honey Boy still getting made. Yeah, exactly. Child actors, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. There's no excuse, really. And speaking of films, yeah. um, is there something by a woman director that you've seen recently that you think is an undervalued gem <laughs> that more people should have seen? I chose something from the 90s. Okay. Uh, so I chose When Night is Falling by Patricia Rosema. I have not seen it. Tell okay. me about it. Well, I watched it. It came across my life. Don't know how. I was in the middle of nowhere in Wales. It's a French-Canadian film, a lesbian film. And it was maybe just before on the cusp of when I was kind of realising that I was a massive gay. <laughs> um, and, and I came across it and it's, it's, it's kind of all about like oppression and there's like this really, uh, I can't remember if, she's, if she works at a Catholic kind of college or something like that. Mm. Uh, and then she meets a, a circus performer and... It's just it's just quite dark. Like I don't know if it was if it was kind of made in, you know, the depths of winter in Canada or something. But yeah, I I, I don't know why. I can't can't even begin to tell you why, but it it left an impression on me and I thought, "Oh yeah, I'll put that I'll put that forward tomorrow." Nia, this has been really fascinating. Thank you so much. That's okay. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard and found it interesting, I'm pleased to say there is plenty more where it came from and you can browse the archive at your leisure on iTunes, Spotify or Acast. And if you really, really liked what you heard, leave a review. I'm told it's meant to spread good pod karma. Have a good week. Listener.